You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to begin reading in verse 41, John chapter 11. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Let's bow in prayer before we begin. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, and it is our desire that we would be granted understanding and illumination in your word this morning. We pray that you would send your spirit to be our guide and our comforter and our counselor and our teacher so that we might understand your truth and render to you hearts of obedient praise and thanksgiving for it. May you be glorified in and through your people, and may you use this time to edify and equip us in our faith, once for all delivered to the saints. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You can tell from my voice that it's not what it should be, so uh, here's the deal I'm going to make with you today. I'm going to talk really quiet and subdued and quiet like this, and you try and stay awake. And uh, I'm going to talk until I get done talking or until I can talk no more, and then once my voice completely runs out, my wife and children will give thanks and we will all return home. So this might be a bit difficult for you to listen to, which is really probably nothing new. We, uh, having looked at John chapter 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus, I thought it would be a, a good opportunity to take some of the things that we have observed from John 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus and apply it to a modern trend or sort of a fad that seems to be sweeping uh, Christianity. I'm sure that it is no news to you, but it seems to be a uh, something that is growing in uh, popularity, this whole idea of going to heaven and coming back to tell us all about it. Have you noticed that this is kind of a common thing and it's becoming more and more, um, more and more in the news all the time, people saying that they've gone to heaven and come back. Uh, taking a trip to heaven has become quite a lucrative little endeavor. Tim Challies likes to refer to this as heavenly tourism, which I think is a good moniker to put on it. And this tourism is quite a lucrative industry. Um, it's not lucrative for heaven, but the tourists seem to do quite well. Because when they come back, they publish books and are somehow able to turn their little trips into heaven into uh, quite a profitable career. The first one that sort of hit the Christian scene was Don Piper in his book he published in uh, 1994, I think it was, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Uh, he claims to have gone to heaven and come back. 
And when that first came out, I thought to myself, now Christians aren't going to get into this. This is a probably a self-publishing phenomenon. This is going to go the way of the dinosaur. People aren't going to buy this at all. Well, it turns out Christians did buy it about four million times or over four million times, and it became so popular that it spawned a, a whole series of other types of books, the same book in, in, the, in different languages and calendars and trinkets and bobblehead dolls and all the other stuff that as Christians we like to buy. I don't know about the, the bobblehead dolls. Uh, then after that came Heaven is for Real, the story about Colton Burpa, a little four-year-old boy who had a surgery, and during his surgery he claims to have had a near-death experience or an outer body experience where he went to heaven. And his accounting of heaven is entirely different than Don Piper's uh, heaven. Don Piper never saw Jesus or God, according to the book, though a couple years later he says he did see God high and lifted up. He saw the bright light. So his story changed over time, which we can understand how that's possible. When you're making stuff up out of whole cloth, uh, the story tends to change, which it did for Piper. Uh, Colton Burpo says he did see Jesus, and Jesus went up and down like an elevator. He levitated and went up and down and uh, has a rainbow-colored horse and, and sat Colton on his lap and helped Colton with his homework. The picture that you see of God and Jesus in these visions of heaven is nothing like the picture of God and Jesus that you see in Scripture or in the book of Revelation, nothing at all. Uh, then came, well, this came to my attention. Actually, this book was published before Heaven is for Real, and it's the account, uh, the book is called Proof of Heaven. I don't know if you've seen this one or not. I actually finished reading it a couple weeks ago. I finished writing a review of it on Friday, and in the course of the next couple of months, we're going to be publishing that in our church newsletter. Proof of Heaven is the story of Dr. Aben Alexander, who is a neurosurgeon, an MD, and uh, he was he, he contracted E. coli bacterial meningitis, which infected his spine and his brain, and put him into a seven-day coma, during which time this man, who is an unbeliever, a rank unbeliever, says that he visited the afterlife and saw heaven. So when that review comes out, you'll be able to read all about what heaven looks like from the perspective of an unbeliever. Now, whether it is the, the books written by uh, Christians or the books written by non-Christians, all three of those books have something in common. And that is a complete and glaring absence of the gospel. That's right. Whether written by Christians or non-Christians, the gospel is entirely absent. And you know why? There's a very good reason for this. It's because the books are not about Jesus, it's not about the gospel, and they're really not about heaven. If you read the books, you will find that the books are about the authors, the people who write the books. They're the ones that the book is about. It's about their experience, what they learned, why they've come back, what they saw, what they had, how this happened to them, why they were chosen, what they have to tell us. It's all about them. It's not about Jesus. You see, these authors know that the minute they start talking about Jesus, their readers will say, I don't need a book for that. I got the Bible for that. I want to find out about you and your experience. And so it is all about them. And this industry of, of talking about your trip to heaven and, and what you experienced and what happened there, it is quite a profitable industry. Heaven is for real zipped past Don Piper's four million all the way past six million. And guess what? You get to look forward to this coming year. They're making a movie about it. But you can't, I, I can't wait for that, the movie, as if the world does not have reason enough to mock Christians. Now, these type of books are marketed to a Christian community that is so desperate to have the Word of God authenticated and validated. The Christian community lacks such confidence in Scripture that we desperately cling to any celebrity or any author who will do anything to give credence or believability to our faith. It is a fleshly approach to Christianity. It is a fleshly desire to desire something other than Scripture and what is written. And if they can parlay that into being millionaires through speaking engagements and book sales, television programs, and now a movie, it's quite a lucrative industry. 
Compare all of that nonsense to the very simple record that we get in John chapter 11 with Lazarus. Just compare and contrast it. All of the accounts of the, the, the first-hand experience, I went to heaven and I saw this, and here's what I heard, and here's what I did, and here's what I felt, and here's why I'm here to tell you. Do you notice that we read through John chapter 11 that there's, there's not a word from Lazarus' mouth about anything that he saw? Do you notice that? I read through that and I read Lazarus was raised from the dead. And what is the first question that you and I ask? The first thing that I want to know is what did Lazarus see? What did Lazarus experience? And I ask this, was Lazarus, <clears throat> was Lazarus when he returned here aware of where he had been and what he, where he had gone and what he had done? Did he have a memory of that? Did he wake up in the tomb having heard the words Lazarus come forth? Did he sort of come to in the tomb wrapped in those stinky grave clothes and think to himself, who summoned me back here? I mean, I was just moments ago, I was in glory and in paradise, and now here I am. Did he remember that? Did he remember whom he had talked to in heaven and what he had experienced in heaven? Was he able to tell other people about it? If Lazarus lived in our day, guess what he would have done? Oh, he could have written a book. He could have gone on the speaking circuit. He could have done a movie about it. He could have made it into a career and a very profitable one at that. But Scripture doesn't record Lazarus doing any of that. And Lazarus was not dead 90 minutes. Lazarus was not almost dead, like the Burpo boy. Lazarus spent four days there. Four days there. So my curiosity about what Lazarus experienced and what he saw, I realized, I should say, I realized just how fleshly and carnal that curiosity was when I read Matthew Henry in his commentary on John chapter 11. Let me tell you what Matthew Henry says. Listen to this. Do any ask where the soul of Lazarus was during the four days of its separation? Yeah, see, I did. I read that. I thought, yeah, I've asked that. Where was the soul of Lazarus during its four days of separation? Now listen to this rebuke. We are not told, but we have reason to think it was in paradise. If any ask whether Lazarus, after he was raised, could give an account or description of his soul's removal out of the body or return to it, or what he saw in the other world, let us not covet to be wise beyond what is written. And this is all that is written concerning the resurrection of that Lazarus, that he that was dead came forth. Some have observed that though we read of many who were raised from the dead, who no doubt conversed familiarly with men afterwards, yet the scripture has not recorded one word spoken by any of them except the Lord Jesus only. End quote. Now that is wise counsel. Think of all the people in scripture who were raised from the dead, who could have, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, had memories of what they saw after they died, and then they came back here. Scripture does not record one word spoken by any of them. Now what does that tell you? That we don't need their testimony to authenticate anything. We don't need it. It's irrelevant. It's useless. It's unnecessary. At best, it is a man's testimony. When you and I have the Word of God, we have all that is necessary for life and for godliness. I don't need the testimony of anybody who has gone to the afterlife. I don't need it. And Scripture doesn't record one word of it. In fact, you notice that Lazarus doesn't say anything in the passage. We don't even get Lazarus' response to it. Because the focus of the passage is not on Lazarus. Who's the focus of the passage? Folks, the passage is Jesus, and that's where it needs to be. In fact, even the controversy that ensues as a result of all of this, even that controversy focuses on the person of Christ. And that is as it should be. So today we're going to look at the division that occurred amongst the witnesses in verses 45 and 46, and then verses 47 and 48, the dilemma, the dilemma that was present among the leaders. The division among the witnesses and then the dilemma among the leaders. 
Read verses 45 and 46 with me. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, what's interesting here is this is right after Jesus had said to them, unbind him and let him go. And I want you to notice before we look at verse 45, I want you to notice there is not a word given of the response of Mary or Martha or Lazarus. Now, that's interesting because for a whole chapter, we have read and looked at the account of their grief and their weeping and their sadness and all of the and the death and and all the crying and the mourning and all that went on with that and the wailing. We've looked at all of that, haven't we? What, What did we see about their joy? Do you notice that John doesn't record anything about their joy or rejoicing? Nothing. He's silent about it. He doesn't mention anything about Martha's response or Mary's response. He doesn't mention anything about Lazarus's response. Was Lazarus disappointed? Was he discouraged? Was he upset? Was he depressed that he was brought back here? You read John Piper, not John Piper, sorry, that is an entirely different individual. Don Piper's account in 90 Minutes uh, in Heaven, <laughs> I was going to say 90 Minutes are for real, but that's not right. 90 Minutes in Heaven, you read Don Piper's account, and he spends uh, more than a whole chapter talking about on multiple occasions how disappointed he was to come back here and to, back to this life after being in heaven. And you don't read anything like that from Lazarus. John doesn't focus at all on Mary's response or Martha's response or Lazarus' response. And you know why? Because in one sense, it's completely irrelevant. And, and there's something else here, and, and J.C. Ryle, I think, notes this rightly. He says that affliction is a more profitable study than rejoicing. Affliction is a more profitable study than rejoicing. There is much mentioned about their weeping and their grief and their sorrow because there is much to be learned in weeping and grief and sorrow. There's nothing mentioned really about their joy or rejoicing because there's not as much that we can learn from joy and rejoicing. It is like the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 where Solomon says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living take it to heart. It is better to go to a funeral home than a house of feasting. Why? Because there are better and more profitable lessons to be learned in a funeral home than you will learn at a house of feasting. What do you learn from joy and rejoicing? A lot. You learn a few things. But I'll tell you where the school of the soul is The school of the soul and the sanctifying influences in times of mourning and grief and sorrow and contemplating death. That is what God will use to sanctify you. It's the hard times, not the good times. John skips over entirely the reaction of the friends of Jesus and the friends of that family. And he focuses entirely on the reaction of people that are to us complete strangers. There's complete strangers to us, but they were familiar with Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And that is the Jews. Verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what he had done and believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. (coughs) Now, the, the, the reaction of the witnesses, they are divided into two groups. There are those who believe and there are those who do not believe. Those who believe and those who do not believe. The believers are mentioned in verse 45. The unbelievers are mentioned in verse 46. Now, anytime that we see John mention the word belief or the response of belief, We have learned that we have to pay attention to the context to determine if the belief that John is speaking of is genuine saving faith that actually regenerates the heart, genuine true belief of his sheep, or if the belief that John is speaking of is that shallow intellectual assent to truths which does not save. And we have seen both of those kinds of belief through the Gospel of John. There is that shallow intellectual assent to certain facts that cannot save, and there is a genuine casting of one's Hope of the soul upon Christ, which is genuinely belief that belief that does save. So which one is John mentioning or talking about in verse 45? Are these people who believed the shallow kind or are they the genuine, genuine, true, saving, believing kind? Are these his sheep that are mentioned in verse 45 who actually believe upon him? 
There are some things from the context which I think indicate that these are genuine believers. First of all, you'll notice that um, in verse 40 and 42, Jesus mentions belief, and he is not talking about shallow belief. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And in verse 42, he says, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. That's true belief. That's the type of belief Jesus is describing in the context. You'll also notice that there is a contrast in verses 45 and 46. The word but at the beginning of verse 46 seems to indicate that those who responded with unbelief in verse 46 are unbelievers. And so then verse 45 must be genuine, true belief. And then you'll notice the reaction of the council or the concern of the council down in verse 48. When they get together, they say, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their concern seems to be genuine belief. So I would take verse 45 to be that these were genuine believers. Now, these are men who came out to the tomb that day and they saw Jesus. And when they witnessed this miracle, they were in no way friends of Jesus. These are the hostile Jews. And they came out and when they saw that miracle, Lazarus really raised from the dead. When they saw that, all of their defenses and all of their objections and all of their hostility melted away. And these men said, finally, we cannot stand against this any longer. We understand who he is, what he claims to be. And they believed. Now, there's an opposite response in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now you can imagine that scene, and it's not difficult to imagine that scene. This group of people, they, when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they just said, all right, we've got to go tell somebody about this. And they went off, and they went and told the Pharisees. And they went back into Jerusalem, which was, remember, is only a two-mile walk away. They went back into Jerusalem to tell the Pharisees all the things that Jesus had done. What did they report to the Pharisees? They would have reported, of course, all the details of this miracle. They would have said, look, we went out to Bethany. We were uh, we were comforting Mary and Martha. And uh, we're sitting there on the floor with Mary, as is our custom, weeping and mourning and carrying on like we did. And all of a sudden, Martha comes running in, whispers something in Mary's ear. Mary got up and off like a shot she went. And we're, well, what do we do? Well, let's go. I guess she's going to the tomb to weep. So we went outside the village, got outside the village. And who was there? Jesus of Nazareth, our mutual enemy. That's right. He was there. And then he wanted to know where the tomb was. So we went to the tomb and we said, we'll follow along, see what's going on. Jesus got there. He told him to roll away the stone from the tomb. And Mary put up a stink, no pun intended. She put up a stink and said, no, you don't want to do that because of the stench that's inside the grave. But they did it anyway. And you should have smelled the inside of that grave. It was horrible. And then Jesus did some prayer and he talked to the people around there. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth and out stumbles Lazarus in all of his grave clothes, smelling like he did. And we unbound him and it was Lazarus. Now he was four days dead and he was four days in the tomb. You should have seen this. This is incredible. Incredible. We have to stop him. Not Lazarus, but we have to stop him. We have to stop Jesus. These people saw the exact same miracle that the believers did. And how did they respond? In unbelief and hostility. And they would have reported to the Jews not just all the things that Jesus had done, the miracle, but they certainly would have reported, look, we had men that we went out there with. We hated Jesus just as much as they did. And now they're believing on him. We got turncoats in our own midst. He's even convincing some of the Pharisees to believe in him. And now they've gone after him. We have to stop him. And they probably rushed back into Jerusalem to tell the Pharisees this because now Jesus is back in their neck of the woods. Remember, he had been away in Perea for a period of time, and now he's only two miles away. So this would be a perfect opportunity to seize him if they want to seize him. But these hostile Jews determined that they've got to do something about Jesus. So that is the division that exists amongst the witnesses. Some believed and some did not believe. They both saw the same miracle. They both smelled the same stench. They both saw, heard the same words come from Jesus. They both saw the same sign and there were two different responses. And John has done this throughout his gospel. We have seen John do this. He will tell us about a miracle and then he gives us the response of the people. Some believe and some remain unbelieving. 
And then John will give us another miracle. Some believe and some remain unbelieving. That's John's way of drawing a line in the sand and saying, now which one are you? Do you believe or do you remain in your irrational, hard-hearted, God-hating, darkness-loving unbelief? That is the call that goes out every time we read about a miracle. Some believed and some did not believe. That's the division that existed amongst the witnesses. Now I want you to notice (coughs) the dilemma among the leaders. We must be coming closer to the end, right? Because the voice is about ready to go. The dilemma among the leaders. There is the council in verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. That's likely the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews. They were given by Rome a lot of latitude in dealing with civil and religious and cultural issues and ruling their own people. The Sanhedrin was not allowed to put anybody to death. That didn't stop them, but Rome didn't like them doing it. They still did it, like with Stephen, for instance. They stoned Stephen. So they would put people to death, but they didn't really have the authority to do that. But they did have a lot of latitude in ruling their own people. (coughs) I'm sorry. The Sanhedrin is composed of two different... That's better, isn't it? The Sanhedrin is composed of two different groups of people. Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, It's funny to somebody, I guess. Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, normally, they didn't get along and they didn't agree on anything. They were on polar opposites of each of almost every issue. The Pharisees, they had a high view of God and his word. The Sadducees, not so much. The Pharisees accepted all the books of the Old Testament as scripture. The Pharisees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture. The Pharisees, sorry, Sadducees accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pharisees believed in all things supernatural. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, in angels, in spirits, in the afterlife, in heaven and in hell, eternal punishment, eternal reward. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of those things. The Pharisees came from the middle class. They were kind of like the common folks in a lot of ways. The the Sadducees came from the the ruling class. They were the elite, the snobbery, kind of the the upper crust of society. Uh, The Pharisees, they were natural-born Israelite nationalists, real patriotic and Israel all the way. They hated the Romans. The Sadducees, they were sort of political opportunists, and they would sell out to Rome if if it could advance their own game, and a lot of times they did. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't even they couldn't agree even on a hatred for Rome. They couldn't even agree to hate Rome together, because the Pharisees would hate Rome, and the Sadducees, they would say, well, hey, we're fine being ruled as long as we get some of the benefits. So we're fine with that. They didn't agree on anything. Now, you say there's no Sadducees mentioned. That's the chief priests. We know from other scripture references that the chief priests and Caiaphas, they belong to the group known as the Sadducees. John doesn't mention Sadducees anywhere in his gospel, but we know that Sadducees were part of the Sanhedrin from the other Gospels and that Caiaphas and the chief priests were part of the Sadducees. Though they did not agree on anything, there was one thing that they could agree on. They didn't agree on anything else. There was one thing they did agree on. And what was that? They hated Jesus. That brought them together. A hatred for the light and a hatred for the truth will make for some very strange bedfellows. Watch the political scene. You will see two groups of people who disagree about every conceivable thing under the sun who will come together in an opposition to the truth on a given issue. Because a hatred for the, a hatred for the truth and a hatred for the light will make for some very strange bedfellows. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they convened a council in verse 47. And here's the agenda. One question. What are we doing? It's the one question they have to answer. What, what are we doing? The question could be rendered, what are we going to do? That's kind of the idea of it. What, what are we doing? What's the answer to that question? Obviously not enough. We have slandered him. We have called him a bastard child. We have maligned him in every conceivable way. We have attributed his works, which he has done, to Satan. We have 
we have questioned his integrity. We have called him a false teacher. We have tried to stone him. We have tried to seize him. We have tried to arrest him. We have slandered him all over the place, and yet people continue to believe in him, and he continues to go about doing these works. What are we going to do? We have to do something to stop this man, because if we do not, the Romans will come in, and everybody will believe on him, and the Romans will come in and take away our place, and they will take away our nation. It is either the nation perishes or this man perishes. That is their dilemma. And they state it clearly in verse 47 and 48. What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. That's a pretty bold admission, by the way. Did, the, did these men did try and deny that Jesus had actually raised Lazarus from the dead? They didn't deny that. They couldn't deny it. Lazarus was alive only two miles away. They couldn't deny it. They confess and recognize this man is doing miracles and he is doing signs. And if we don't stop him, everybody, a hyperbole of sorts, everybody's going to believe upon him. Now, obviously they didn't believe that they would eventually believe but they are using everybody in the sense that the majority of the nation is going to believe upon him. And then the Romans will come in and they will take away or destroy our place and our nation. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, by place and nation, they're probably referring to the temple, their city, and and uh, their their worship and their religion and probably the city of Jerusalem. It might be It might be a way of referring to all of that. They're going to take away, they're going to destroy everything. So we have to destroy Jesus before the Romans come in and destroy us. Now, here's their dilemma. Let me sort of unpack it for you. It's this. They know that Jesus' miracles are convincing proofs of his claims. They know this. They can't deny it. They've already confessed it. They all acknowledge that and they agree with it. He is doing signs. We cannot refute the signs. We know what it is that he's doing. And these signs prove that he is who he claims to be. He is claimed to be God. He is claimed to be the Messiah, the son of David. His signs are evidence that that is true. But if we allow him to continue doing these signs, the Romans are going to smell an insurrection. Because people, if they believe him, they will begin to believe upon him, and then they will view him as Dave, as son of David, as the king of Israel. And then we're going to, Rome is going to sniff an insurrection. And Rome did not like insurrections. They, they put down any hint of an insurrection or any hint of a revolt in a brutal way. And so here's their dilemma. If we let him continue doing this, people are going to believe. People are going to want to revolt against Rome. Rome is going to come in and destroy us and wipe out our place and our nation. So in order to avoid having that happen, we must kill him for the sake of saving the rest of the people. Now that is their stated dilemma. I don't actually think that that is really truly their objection. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. It's not really their truly, their true dilemma, their true, uh, problem, but that's, the guys that they give to it. That's actually how they state it. Now here's the irony of history. These men believed that in order to save their people and the worship of God and the temple, that they had to kill Jesus. Here's how it actually unfolded. They killed Jesus, and as an act of judgment upon the nation for that, Titus the Roman general came in only 40 years later, and guess what he destroyed? He destroyed the temple, destroyed the nation, destroyed the people. Here's the irony of history. They thought in order to save all of that, they had to kill Jesus. And by killing Jesus, they ended up sacrificing and destroying all of that. That's very ironic. Now that's their stated dilemma. But I actually don't think that that is their true issue with Jesus. See, I don't think that they really believed that Jesus would lead an insurrection. And here's why. On more than one occasion, Jesus told them, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to fight. He told them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. 
He had demonstrated his submission to governing authorities, both to Rome and to the Jewish people, on every occasion that didn't require disobedience to God. He had done that. They knew he was no insurrectionist. Back in chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000, they tried to make him king, took take him by force and make him king. And what did he do? He walked away from them and went to be by himself until the pro-Messianic fervor could kind of die down a little bit. These Jewish leaders knew that he was not an insurrectionist. And even if they really did believe that he was an insurrectionist, they have no excuse for not jumping on the bandwagon and helping him lead the insurrection. Look, if you had a military leader who could raise the dead and heal all your wounded and sick, and create food for troops out of thin air, and walk on water, that's an invincible army, is it not? So if they really believed that Jesus was after an insurrection, this was the Pharisees' opportunity to jump on board the insurrection and follow a military leader who could not fail to overthrow Rome. But they don't really believe that he's after an insurrection. Do you know what their real issue is? On more than one occasion, Jesus had confronted the Pharisees and he had revealed their hypocrisy and their tyrannical quest and love for power and their ostentatious, self-righteous displays, and their twisting of Scripture, and their onerous traditions, and their abuse of the Word of God, and their abuse of the people. He had revealed all of that. He had confronted them with their own hypocrisy, and their love for the darkness, and their love for their own self-righteousness. He had confronted that with the Pharisees. So here's their real issue. If the people believe him, what does that say about us? Eventually, the people are not going to fear us anymore. Do you remember the man born blind? And they called his parents in to interview his parents. What does John say? They feared the Pharisees. They feared the Jews. They didn't want to say anything in favor of Jesus. So they threw their own son under the bus in order to avoid saying anything positive about Jesus. That's the fear that the people had of the Jewish leadership of the nation. And these Pharisees know that if people believe on Jesus, they're going to stop fearing us. They're going to see us for what we are. Real, true, genuine, tyrannical hypocrites clothed in our own self-righteousness, who deny God. So here is their double hypocrisy. Their double hypocrisy is not only that they opposed Jesus and loved darkness and hated the truth and hated the light, but that they cloaked that hatred for the truth and that hatred for the light in a guise of wanting to protect the people that they cared nothing about and in a guise of trying to protect the nation and the temple, which they truly only cared about because it was a source of profit and power for them. That's what really is at issue. That's what's really at issue. Now, what do we learn from the resurrection of Lazarus and the response of these leaders? There's a key theological point that I want you to notice, and it is this. Evidence itself is unable to convert or change a heart. Evidence itself is unable to convert or change a heart. Now, you say, but Jim, in verse 45, we read it with our own eyes that therefore many of them believed when they saw this sign. They did believe when they saw the sign, but listen, Everybody else saw the sign as well. These men who are unbelieving see the sign. What accounts for the difference between those who believe and those who do not believe? Is it evidence itself that is enough to convince men? It's not. Evidence itself cannot convert a heart. Evidence itself does not convince a sinner to divorce his sin and abandon it and embrace salvation and the light. Evidence does not change a heart from loving darkness to loving light. Evidence can't do that. Evidence can never do that. There are some people who remain in unbelief who say, if I only had enough evidence, I would believe. That's a lie. It's a fancy. It's a fairy tale. There's no amount of evidence that would convince them. We are given so much evidence in Scripture. The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. The person who says God does not exist is a fool. And you know why they're a fool? Because evidence abounds that God exists. And so much evidence exists that Romans 1 says that just the natural creation itself is enough to hold men accountable for their sin. That's how much evidence we have. So much evidence that to deny it makes one an irrational fool. 
Evidence is not our problem. There are people who kind of come from a, not all charismatics, but a charismatic background, and certain portions of charismatic theology says we need to have signs and wonders today to accompany the proclamation of the gospel in order to convince people to believe the message. And if people see signs and they see miracles, they will believe. Really? If the problem with the human heart is a lack of evidence, then evidence can create belief. But the problem with the human heart is not a lack of evidence. What is it? It's love for darkness. Evidence itself cannot overcome that. These men saw all the same miracle. And some believed and some did not. So I ask you this, why is it that sitting and listening to the same message and the same messenger, God wrought faith in my heart, I believed, and my best friend sitting to my right did not believe? What is the difference between myself and my best friends? The difference the message? We heard the same message. Is the difference the messenger? We heard the same messenger. Is the difference the evidence? We had the same evidence. What is the difference? The difference is I was a sheep and I heard his voice and I came to him and I believed in him, and he gave me eternal life. That's the difference. It goes back to chapter 10. What is it we have in verses 45 and 46? We have some men who are his sheep, and they belong to him, and when they saw the miracle, they came to the shepherd. All the defenses melted away, the hostility gone, the heart was changed, because something else was at work. It wasn't just the miracle. It wasn't just the evidence. It was something else at work. What is necessary in the heart of man is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God to change a love for darkness into a love for the truth and a love for the light and to do something in the heart of man that evidence can never do, and that is to create a new heart and to take the heart of stone out and give it a heart of flesh so that belief is the natural response of the regenerated man, so that we do believe and we do repent. That is all the gift of God. It's all the gift of his grace. Now, the conspiracy is not quite over with yet. We've only got to the end of verse 48. Caiaphas has a great idea. At least as far as he's concerned, he thinks he has a great idea. And we're going to look at the rest of the conspiracy next time we are together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace which has brought us out of darkness and into light. We thank you that having seen the evidence of your creation and having been worked upon by your Holy Spirit, that you opened our eyes to see the truth and to behold it and to know it and to embrace it. We thank you for that sovereign and saving grace and that love that you have for your people that made us your people, that chose us, brought us near to yourself, as Psalm 65 says. We are a blessed people for that for that reason. And we thank you for your word and what it teaches us about the nature of evidence and the nature of unbelief. And we thank you that you have delivered us from the bondage of unbelief so that we might believe upon your son and receive eternal life by your grace. We thank you in his name who has made all of this possible. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.